0: Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. In this podcast, we discuss how data is creating our future. Specifically, we cover applications of analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. We discuss career tips for data scientists on how to lead and create value from data. And also, what are the current and future challenges in data science. In this podcast, we interview current leaders in the data space such as heads of and directors of data science and data engineering, chief data scientists and chief data officers to find out straight from them what were the lessons they've learned in their careers which have helped them get to where they are today. My name is Felipe Flores and I have over 15 years experience in the data space where I've worked on everything from data warehousing to reporting and business intelligence to machine learning and artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy this episode. In this episode, we speak with Tony Lang. Uh, Tony has over 20 years of experience and is a wealth of knowledge. I particularly enjoyed his practical and delivery-focused approach to creating value from analytics and also creating a data-driven culture in organizations. So we we spent a lot of time talking about that. We also cover uh, what is the nuts and bolts of analytics. We cover about the data supply chain that is required in organizations to deliver analytics and machine learning solutions. So some what, what are some of the prerequisites? We talk about how to deliver quick wins and also strategic projects concurrently. Uh, we discuss the journey to add significant value in an organization through analytics. Uh, also, what questions to ask executives to kickstart their data science journey uh, we talk about why there's so much turnover in data science he tells us why data preparation and model building is actually only 20 percent of our job and much much more uh, it's a really really enjoyable and an episode that's full of value tony is uh, currently working in in brisbane and he's a general manager of analytics and data services at auto in general uh, which is an insurance company I hope that you enjoy the episode. Hi, this is Felipe Flores, and today I'm speaking with Tony Ling. How are you doing, mate?
1: I'm great. All the way here from, I'd like to say sunny Brisbane, but it's a little bit cool and overcast. Probably not as cold as Melbourne, but yeah, it's great. Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: No, thank you. Thank you so much for for making the time. I've been looking forward to speaking with you for for quite a while. And as we were talking just before, I I saw a presentation that you did at the Data Science Melbourne meetup for a Christmas event, and I thought it was it was fantastic in the sense that it was it was interesting, it was insightful, it was funny, and it was about uh, leadership in, in data science and and things to do and, and not to do and um, very, very interesting and exactly what we're going to be talking about today. So thank you. Thank you for that.
1: No problem. Um, just recalling it was more about exploding the myth of the, the rock star data scientist <laughs> And um, what that does and doesn't mean in practice, and how people can take themselves a little bit seriously in this space, and just having a bit of a lighthearted dig at the whole thing. It was excellent. I remember that the <laughs> the whole room was both impressed and, and in
0: stitches at times with the presentation. And I, I mentioned to you just before that I, I still recall one of the slides that, that said, um, uh, "You know, Excel plus Rapid Miner uh, doesn't doesn't equal a <laughs> unicorn. That is a unicorn." So that was that was great. I had um, that. I actually
1: had feedback. Um, afterwards that a few people couldn't tell if I was for real or not because I'd I just spent 12 months in New Zealand at that point and had just come back. So I'd been a little bit con- disconnected from the scene in Melbourne. So most pe- people in the room probably didn't recognize me or know me. Uh, I had a few people come up to me later on asking if I was actually for real or not. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So so to uh, to start
0: off with, I wanted to, to ask mm-hmm. you about um, how you got started in in sure. the field. And the reason why I like to start uh, the interviews there is because uh, a lot of the listeners are people uh, that are either aspiring data scientists or, pe- or data scientists coming up to the ranks or people looking to move from, I guess, a different profession or a different specialty and they're looking to move into data science. And they always find it a challenge and, and that they don't know where to start a lot of times and for that I always like to highlight where uh, leaders such as yourself uh, got started and um, how was it for you? How were your early days like and sure. how did you get started in the field?
1: It's actually a great question to ask because I see us as a, a pretty broad church and a, a lot of people have come at it from a different perspective. I think the key thing is just to get started, you know. So, I, in my own case, I, typical Graduating from university in the early mid-90s, had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I actually uh, started out with a commerce degree and started out in marketing and it was more in physical product management. Um, I'd flirted with the idea of a couple of startups early on in the piece, but this was the early 90s when startups still involved a pretty significant bricks and mortar cost. So um, yes. and entrepreneur, entrepreneurship was actually a pretty dirty word in Australia because of Alan Bond and Christopher Scase and that association, that sort of thing. So back in those days, things were very much, uh, you either work in the, the big end of town or there was no real focus on startups, et cetera, like there is today. And, and um, most of the digital world didn't exist back then this was as the internet was just starting out and finding its legs. So I was very much... Um, a product marketer, product manager, and uh, it was around about well, the late 90s, the company I was working for said, what's this CRM stuff? I, I'd, been, um, I'd been making the company's website and doing a lot of the graphic design stuff and advertising. I said, oh, I don't know what CRM is. I'll look at it for you. So I ended up helping the organisation um, bring in its first CRM system. Now, back days CRM was kind of a double-headed definition. Um, The single customer view side of it was only just starting out but a lot of people saw CRM as as Customer profiling and gap analysis. What are customers buying versus what are they not buying? So it was all about the opportunity profiling. That was where I led to in the early 2000s. um, I was developing more algorithms to determine customer opportunities and all those sorts of things and It was around about 2005. i have been working in data for quite a few years. By then, I thought, well, I might formalise my skill set. I always had a a bent for statistics in what I was doing, so I went and um, did a master's degree in statistics at RMIT. And um, that was about formalising a skill set and even... that stage, I mean, data science wasn't even a word back then. It was more about data. I actually had to knock down a few barriers. My my thesis was on um, artificial neural networks and a couple of specific applications, and I had to knock down a few barriers to get that accepted as a topic in a statistics master's degree. So this was... This was very much the early days uh, and it's amazing how quickly the world has changed just in the last 10 years in that regard. So a lot of my focus in the last 20 years has been establishing and ramping up analytics capabilities in businesses of all shapes and sizes. I mean, that's kind of what I'm a specialist in is building capabilities. And in a lot of cases, that involves um, starting out as a one-man band and building the capability yourself and then demonstrating the return and then adding another person on and then adding a person on before you know it, you've got a, a pretty decent sized team. And um, where I am at the moment, I'm mostly involved in um, the EDW and BI side of things and the take up, the cultural adoption, um, managing the team who's developing the data warehouse, all those sorts of things. So it's funny as as I've gone further in my career, I've gone further and further back up the data supply chain mm-hmm. uh, and loving it. Um, my... my um, Overall approach is a very nuts and bolts one. I think um, from the very early days, I I take a lot of that um, from my father who uh, was an ear, nose and throat surgeon who recently retired. And although that's a very obviously technically specific background being in medicine, he took the academic side of that and turned it into a a, he he always viewed what he did as a very nuts and bolts thing it's very practical you're working with people you're working on real problems to develop real solutions and I kind of took that away as well and that's how I've applied it to my career although I've got the academic backing I'm I'm not one to focus on the academic aspects of what we do for a living I'm all about the real basically taking requirements from people in business Translating that into a technical problem, translating that into a technical technical solution, and then translating that back into a business solution you know, for fun and profit. So I, I take a very practical approach.
0: That's excellent. What do you focus on when when taking that approach, that real nuts and bolts approach? What What are you thinking through the process, and what are you trying to aim for while you do that?
1: A lot of organisations and a lot of people you work for tend to have a very a very big appetite for the use of analytics. And, you know, these days in the last few years, machine learning, although I really um, despise the term AI, people are starting Mm -hmm. to talk about that sort of thing and I'll get into later on why I kind of despise that term. Very big expectations about what it can do. So you spend a lot of your time managing those expectations while delivering to a promised program of delivery and making it very clear that it's a journey, it's not a sprint with these things. If you've got an end state that you want to get to, I mean, with a lot of organisations, their data supply chain is just not up to the delivery of those solutions. So I've had many situations where I've come into places ostensibly with the idea to ramp up machine learning and data science capabilities and finding that we're having to take a big step back from that and just get the data supply chain in, into shape um, to mm-hmm. facilitate those sorts of tools. So managing expectations while trying to find some really quick wins along the way and some quick deliveries that demonstrate that the road you're on is going to deliver big things.
0: How do you prioritize and how do you pick what to work on now as a, as a quick win, what to work now as a more strategic project? And what to leave till later? How how do you go about prioritizing that?
1: I found in the early stages, the best approach is not to be too um, too precious about what is considered a quick win. If a quick win is just getting some basic reporting and analytics running on an automated basis for delivery, then that's good. Well you've got to, you've got a there's a certain journey you've got to go on. You can't come in expecting to shoot the lights out and you're going to be delivering <laughs> predictive models that are going to be doing this, that, and the other from day one. I mean, I, I have made that mistake in the past and found that it's it's a very slippery slope. You're setting up massive expectations. You you find pretty soon that you may not actually meet those expectations because the data's not set up to do that. Mm-hmm. You also have to take the time to to get to know the domain as well and gather the knowledge there as well. So I find that the quick wins, if you can get some relatively low effort, but high value, quick wins, that's Nirvana, that's perfect. Um, so that's what I go for first. The big ticket items is a case of really taking a top-down approach and getting to know the people in the organisation, especially the senior people. And I always love asking the question, what's the biggest problem you're facing? Or what are the top three problems you're facing at the moment? And that that's a very good shortcut to getting a quick needs analysis or a set of broad requirements. For the size of the prize in the organization, it's only after you've taken on those sorts of projects and delivered on some of those where you can work on the really big ticket surprise and delight stuff that you've invented yourself in terms mm-hmm. of predictive models, recommendation engines, however you want to go.
0: That's really interesting. So it, it sounds like you do a combination of, I, I guess, meeting people and meeting the organization at the stage of analytics maturity that they're in, help them solve the problems in front of them, and then take them on the journey on how they can they can improve their maturity and get to the next stage. Would you say um, that's right?
1: Yeah. The, well, look, the the soft skills are extremely important. The people skills, all those sorts of things. Um, the the cultural aspects of implementing good data science and good analytics practice in the organization are just as important as the technical aspects of delivery. You've got to Know who the right people are. Find out where you know the real influence is in the organisation. One one old cliche of our area that still rings absolutely true is if you don't have CEO and top director uh, buy-in or a mandate for what you're trying to do, mm-hmm. you're dead in the water to start with. I've thankfully had most situations I've been in where I've um, had really good working relationships with CEOs, directors, etc. And If you don't already have the buy-in by virtue of you being there in the first place, you've got to work on the the influencing part and the managing upwards part of getting that buy-in. There's very few situations where I, despite my best efforts, haven't had that buy-in and that's where you run into trouble. I mean, it is a cliche and it goes all the way back to books like competing on analytics and all those sorts of Mm -hmm. things, but it really still rings true yes and it's so so
0: important so in your case do you do you try to ensure before you join the organization maybe through an interview process or something like that do you try to ensure before you get there that you will have the the buy in and that the organization is is ready
1: that's actually a really really crucial and interesting question felipe because sometimes you'll get you'll get them telling you that and then you'll mm-hmm. turn up and the reality is somewhat different. As I as I get older and get further in my career, I can see the signs during that process that tell me, yes, this company is genuine about it, or, or it's, it's usually a case of they have an idea what they're after, but they're a little bit reluctant to really, really commit a lot of resources to this as a mandate because... I mean, let's face it, there is a lot of there is a lot of hype around what we do as data scientists. There's a lot of this AI hype, which I said I'm not a big fan of. So a lot of people and companies are starting to sniff that out. So they're being wary of committing to the agenda. So it's a little bit of a, a dance between the two of you where you're trying to get a commitment and they're trying to suss you out to see whether you're the sort of leader that they can actually put that commitment behind. I think um, getting to know who you're going to be reporting to and also meeting top management if you can during that interview process goes a long way towards that. But unfortunately, um, or, or fortunately, there's just no substitute for getting in there and doing the job. Now, what I see a lot of is individuals coming into these data science jobs, having big expectations themselves and convincing themselves they've got the mandate, et cetera, and then finding out that's mm. not the case. And I think that's a prime reason why we see a lot of turnover at the moment. A, because for better or for worse, there seems to be a bit of a war for talent going on. And um, Secondly, because I think that high expectations thing nowadays is on both sides of the equation in terms of yes. the, the organization's appetite and in terms of the impact that the individual wants to have straight off the bat when they get in the organization and everyone needs to calm down a little bit and take a more measured approach and negotiate you know a somewhat aggressive but measurable and sustainable pathway that's a great, great point, great point, because it's happening,
0: I think, too much that people are going into jobs thinking that they're you know, going to completely change the organisation in a few months and that they're going to be rock stars.
1: Everyone wants to shoot the lights out when they're in their um, the first few years of their career or the first 10 years of their career. They want to get in there. They're hungry to make an impact. I mean, that's that's all very positive stuff. But I think as it stands in 2018 in data science in Australia, we need to be as, as professionals in data science, we need to be really sensitive to where everything's sitting on the hype cycle at the moment and mm-hmm. not play into that hype ourselves and not try and foster that hype. We need to be very realistic about appetite is one thing, but we need to be very realistic about capability and resourcing and what companies are willing to commit.
0: Yes, understanding where what the, the point is where there's enough enough commitment and you can do something good and, and be patient. and. And I think that's yes. that's something that, that has come through, at least from my perspective, is something that I have seen in, in your career that that you are, I think, quite patient in the way that you you approach um, your your new roles and change companies and be able to create those teams from scratch and create high high growth teams. Uh, so I definitely want to ask you a lot more about that. But sure. but firstly, uh, what what do you think? What do you think makes you uh, have that that patience uh, when you go into new companies and and start new teams, the patience to do the right thing and put in the the work that's going to help you now and in the future.
1: bitter experience and past failure basically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I've I've been down that road myself earlier on, wanting to shoot the lights out and make a big impact and be the the you know, the, the rock star data scientist. You find pretty quickly that that that's just not going to cut it. And, and what uh, what did that um, look like for you? Sorry. Um. It, it it looked like overpromising and underdelivering basically. Come in with a fair bit of swagger. I can do this. I can do that. And then finding that. You just don't have the, the backing, the resources, the capability to get some of those things done. And like I said, I've learned through bitter experience that that's how it goes if you come on way too strong. It's, it's, a, it's a real, like I said, it's a really weird dance. Uh, companies have a big appetite and to an extent, they want you to come on strong in terms of what you think you can achieve. But having said that, a lot of companies have a very conservative approach in terms of the risk of how they go about implementing some of these things. And, and implementation is also what it comes down to. If you're implementing a predictive model or something like that, you want to be very careful about managing the expectations of how you're going to test these things. Um, if it's something that's got, let's say, it's a It's some sort of propensity model. It's got an offer attached to it. You wanna be very careful about how much you expose the company in terms of the offer. So you really need to work with the people in the business side of things to to determine how they wanna implement these things, when they wanna implement these things. But you also wanna communicate very clearly when you're doing say AB testing or testing some of these things. Okay, we may have a little bit of um, drama at the beginning trying to understand how the model is working in the wild. I mean, everyone talks about the old cliche that 80% of a data science project is data preparation and data engineering. I see that as just you know, the model building phase. In terms of an overarching implementation, the actual model building, including that data preparation, is about 20% of the whole job. The other 80% is once you've implemented a model in the wild, you've got to test it and iterate the hell out of it to actually get something that, at some stage may just be considered part of the furniture in the organisation. And I think a lot of people um, underestimate that as well when they go into organisations. They think I'm gonna develop a really good grab bag of models and then I'm gonna hand them over to the business and it's all gonna be hunky-dory and everyone's gonna make millions of dollars. Um, You have to be committed to the long haul, um, at least a couple of years in the organisation to massage these models and babysit them through production, make sure that they're actually doing what they're supposed to be doing and not having unintended consequences either for the organisation or for the customer because there's always unintended consequences when you put these things out in the wild in terms of maybe the systems that you're working with, something breaking. Or um, as an offer or a customer mechanism, it's having customers are able to either game it, or they don't understand it, or you're mm. sacrificing something for the sake of something else, and it turns out that it is isn't as profitable as it should be. Those sorts of things you really need to pay attention to, and it's unfortunately there's very it's few people who are willing to really stick that out and make sure that the fruits of their labor really pan out.
0: Yes, exactly right. Because that's that's when you you get to your work gets to make a difference uh, when when it is in production in the wild and you're you're babysitting that model through through the first the first few months of implementation to make sure that it's that it's working well.
1: Uh, that's, that, that, that's, that can that can be a pretty wild ride for some people. Uh, I mean, seeing seeing your model out in the wild and having the nail biting experience of worrying about whether it's going to make or break you was Uh, it hasn't it's it's reached statistical significance but the result isn't quite there and oh is it going to lose us money and all those sorts of things can be a very hairy experience for some people but that that to me has always been part of the challenge um I've kind of got the luxury of looking back on the last 20 years and and knowing and this is something I'd say to my younger self don't worry everything's going to be fine you're going to have more wins than losses but when you're right in the middle of these implementation, you're just worried about the loss. But you need to really yes. hang on to that and drive it through to get the outcome. Because in a lot of organisations, the attention's put on you, not so much because you got the result, but because you did stick it out and you were committed and you're engaged and all those really good things. That that really stands out as well.
0: Exactly right. And take it take it all the way. Be persistent and and take the model all the way through. That's So important. (laughs) So, so important. And I I can't highlight it uh, enough because, you know, sometimes when when, uh, I speak to to data scientists uh, that are working in teams, they they often express uh, frustration about their organizations. And this Mm -hmm. comes to what you were saying before about the high expectations on both sides. And I think also a lack of uh, patience and their frustration Mm -hmm. is that they, they say that the organization wants to say that they're doing work in analytics, machine learning, um, yeah. but the, they, the team and and sometimes individuals don't feel that the organization has the commitment to do so because they don't feel like they, need, they can work on the, the work that they want to do.
1: Yeah, and, that, and that's a really interesting point you make because a lot of people, um, as well as being frustrated about the impact that they think they may or may not be having, a lot of people focus on their techniques and worry about well I'm not going to use this fancy tech technique or that fancy technique. A lot of people worry about the fact that they're sitting in their cubicle running regression models and all those sorts of things. Yes. Um, I actually don't have an issue with that. My philosophy technically has always been that the simpler the model actually works and gets the uplift the better. I'd rather run yes. a really robust logistic regression that gets me a really good commercial result than a fancy ensemble of a whole bunch of different techniques like neural nets and random forests, et cetera, that may be a little bit more brittle and prone to break, especially around the edge cases that come through. I'd rather have the solid dependable model. Let's say you're getting a few less points of area under the curve and all those sorts of things. Um, let's say the accuracy isn't quite as good. But if the commercial result is good and it's a robust model in production, then don't worry about it. You can iterate on top of it and A-B test later, but you've also got to consider the implementation cost of doing that. So sometimes the optimal result is not the fanciest result. And I think a lot of people see through things through that lens and go, oh, well, this company isn't really doing it for me because I'm not doing the fancy stuff. Well, the thing is a lot of companies aren't doing a lot of the fancy stuff. They say they are, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of companies who just want the nuts and bolts and the bread and butter before they take the big steps. They should work with that and try and help develop the company as opposed to become frustrated about, well, I'm only doing this, I'm only doing that, so I need to go and see what else is going on.
0: Yes, that's exactly the way that people should be seeing it is you need to create simple models that can that can solve problems quickly and create essentially analytics value and a benchmark for how to solve that problem. And then... Uh, take the organization on the journey required and build up from from there. But uh, you're, you're right. A lot of people are saying they feel like data they feel like data science is moving so quickly that if they're not implementing the latest and greatest techniques, people feel like they're falling behind. Uh, which is which is not the case. But how how do you impart that to your
1: teams? Well, I'm I'm very lucky in that I've got a very mature team who are very across the technical detail and are very into continual education, as am I. But I do find that people get a little bit too hung up on what is the latest and greatest technique. Um, I'm all about the try. I mean, I've got a background in statistics, so I'm all about the tried and true application of statistics from a machine learning point of view. I don't like to get too fancy because I was going to make the point that the business isn't interested really in how the watch works uh, in terms of you explaining the technicalities of back propagation and all those sorts of things. They're interested in the value. So, but on the other hand, they, they are interested in you staying ahead of your own individual curve and learning things. But I think people worry a lot about whether my technique or whether my algorithm Um, It stands up to someone else's, if I had to open up all my code to someone else, would they pick it apart and say, I mean, this comes into imposter syndrome, which is one of the questions on your list. Um, People worry a lot about uh, whether they're going to be trumped in terms of their coding and people go, oh, you're not doing this, you're not doing that. So your model might not be as good it really doesn't matter. If the model is robust and it's working and it's getting the uplift, you can always build from there. So don't worry so much about the techniques, et cetera. It's great to stay ahead of what's happening in our, out in the world, but you don't necessarily need to be on this this rush to implement it all in your own business today.
0: Yes, yes, completely, completely agree, completely agree. And and um, before, before we continue this, um, uh, I guess this line of, of questions, I do want to take a, a short detour and, and go into the, uh, the imposter syndrome uh, sure. that, uh, that you just mentioned. Um, so it's, it's obviously a big um, a big problem in, in data science, and, and a lot of people feel like they're feeling sure of themselves and that they're not good enough because of this imposter syndrome. Uh, where, do, where do you think... It, it comes from and, and what do you think people should be thinking about and, and approaching it.
1: I actually think a lot of it does come from the hype cycle, especially all this mm-hmm. nonsense about about AI. Now let me just let me just digress from that point for a minute to, to explain what I mean by that. Right. So when when I did my master's degree in two thousand and five to two thousand and nine I was, I, like I mentioned before, I wrote my thesis on neural networks and I think it was just coming out of a bit of a, a neural network winter. Um, neural networks have come in and out of favour a lot over the last 30 or 40 years since they were first um, developed. And I think I was working on, on my masters at a time when it was just starting to come out of one of its winter phases Now, in the I think it was around about the 1960s or so, there was a lot of artificial intelligence theory research being carried on, and the discipline of pure or what I call emergent AI, which is your walking, talking C3PO type of um, AI, diverged (laughs) from the mathematical techniques they were trying to employ to get there, which is what became data mining, data science, machine learning, whatever you want to call it. Now, they diverged, and now they seem to be converging again because... Mostly because of any uh, rapid improvements in computing power now with big data and all those sorts of things, we're able to actually crunch the data to solve domain-specific machine learning problems, which a lot of people are starting to call AI. So Mm -hmm. my philosophy is real AI, emergent AI. I honestly think we're a couple of hundred years away from that. We're just not going to. we, We we actually don't really understand a lot of aspects of thought and intelligence, emotion, creativity to be able to even justify using the word AI these days. So when people are taking specific domain applications of machine learning and, and calling it AI, I get pretty annoyed at that because I come from that purest view of what AI is actually originally defined as. So um, coming back to imposter syndrome, I think a lot of people see themselves in reflection against the hype of companies talking about AI and they're doing this and they're doing that. So they feel that, well, I've got a few years under my belt, but I've only got so many hours in my day, I can't absorb all this knowledge about artificial intelligence and machine learning and data science and analytics and visualisation and coding and and getting into the, the whole debate about whether you should be working in Python or R or whether you should be working in a visual tool. People tend to mirror themselves against what the world is saying on LinkedIn or whatever, and they're feeling like they're coming up a bit short. Well, I've been around long enough to realise that the reality is not the hype. The hype is the hype, and a lot of vendors are trying to drive the hype cycle, and a lot of large consultancies are driving the hype cycle, but the reality is something different, and I always take the view that if you stick to your knitting and are getting good outcomes for the people you're working with and for, then that's fine. The rest is icing on the cake, and don't really be so worried about whether people think you're an awesome coder or a rock star with your techniques or whatever. If you're getting the business value, then that's fine, and the rest will come later. And I especially say this to people who are in their 20s and early 30s: you've still got another 30 or 40 odd years to figure all this out, and things are going to advance a lot more quickly. So yes. don't worry so much about don't worry so much about it. If you've got a uh, the one the one uh, Quality I value above all else in this field is intellectual curiosity. If you're curious to solve a problem and you have an appreciation of where to go to find out the way to solve the problem, then that's three quarters of the battle. Everything else is just finesse and technique. So if you're intellectually curious and you're committed, you really shouldn't worry. Everything else is fine. Um, Imposter syndrome, I mean, I, I. I'll be honest. I've suffered from it from in the past because you do compare yourself. That's what we do naturally as social animals. We compare ourselves to the person next to us and say, "Do I measure what that person up to the, that what that person is doing?" But it doesn't help to compare your outtakes and your rough draft against someone else's polished, finished product.
0: That's right. That's exactly right. And and I've I've definitely. Uh, have suffered from imposter syndrome as well. And how do, you, how do you deal with that? How do you work? I, I started to think that uh, the problem is around how we measure ourselves.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And uh, by that, I mean that being in a data science team, we we want to measure ourselves by as you said, uh, having the the fanciest model, the the greatest code, uh, the creating greatest coding skills, and that's because we are in essentially in inward looking and kind of in our bubble. So the way that I started thinking about it is to look outward to the to the business and to the the problems solved and the value created. And by problems solved, I mean real satisfied, happy customers. Uh, inside the business and outside of the business people that you know have a smile in their face because they had this problem before that uh, they couldn't solve it and then with your help they were able to solve it and and if for me I've taken that as the measure as you know how many of those happy smiles can I get from customers uh, in the business or outside of the business and 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 how quickly can I get those smiles and to get those smiles quickly, it means that I will use simpler models and and take a lot of complexity and complication out of my data science approach, so I can so I can get those those happy customers uh, quicker and more of them.
1: It's interesting. I suppose the grand irony is that in we're working in a field where we like to measure the hell out of everything, but. We, we're, we're using subjective measures to measure our own worth against other people who are in our field, I find it quite fascinating. <laughs> so true. <laughs> uh, so, so interesting. Um, and I, I really like what
0: you said about, about despising the, the AI hype. That's, that's excellent. And I did want to ask you a follow-up question because sometimes yep. people think that, you know, it's, it's just a, a matter of more data. Obviously, yeah. based on what you said, that it's it's about uh, that the, the computing power and the amount of data available have have started mm-hmm. to create this conversion. And then people mm-hmm. say, okay, we have you know machine learning applications in in narrow context, and that was uh, created through having a lot of data. Then AI will be about having just more data and more uh, computing power. What what do you think about that, and whether it's something a realistic approach for creating what truly is AI?
1: Look, if I put on my statistical background hat and think about the nature and the very basis for statistical theory, it was about squeezing the maximum amount of information out of a very small amount of data. That's, that's mm-hmm. how the field of statistics came about and why sampling was such a necessary thing. You're trying to make the most out of very little. So I'm a, still a huge fan of doing all those sorts of things. Um, where I see computing power... Uh, really helping is not so much in terms of the volume of data. I mean, that's that's just going to happen anyway, right? It's about the creative uses of what you've got and how you can derive things. Um, I think a really um, it's it's uh, there's a, a, a quite a classic book called Data Preparation. I think it's called Data Preparation for Data Mining by Dorian Pyle. It's one of the only texts that's actually that's actually devoted to data preparation. And it makes the case that a lot of uh, variable derivation for as inputs in the models is an art more than a science. And a lot of that comes from knowing the area that you're working in. Oh, this ratio seems to be something that people talk about, so let's throw this into the model. Or if I take these variables and combine them and apply this transformation to them, then that might more uh, um, boost some of the the signal and cut some of the noise and we'll get more value out of that. I think where computing power, the increases in computing power really work for me is making that process a lot smoother because if you think about, say, your CRISP-DM methodologies or various cyclical methodologies of how you prepare data or extract data, prepare it, run through a model, tweak it, go back to the beginning of the process, you might want to draw more data from somewhere from a different source and prepare it again. Those sorts of things, like you know, l- literally the nuts and bolts of sitting and down and doing various model runs in R, I find computing power is more valuable to me in that in that aspect because it can free me up to be more creative about what I can create um, that I can put into models. Because I'm, I, I see a little bit too much of people grabbing raw data and throwing it into al- algorithms. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all well and good, but that's not going to get you the result. Um, a lot of data, there's still an art, like I said, an art to data preparation. And if an increase in computing power helps with the creative side of that art and makes it more frictionless to actually generate precursor variables, that to me is a really valuable thing. It also leads into some of the thoughts I've got on the automation of model building and algorithm building. I'm seeing a lot of those sorts of things being sold at the moment. It's funny, my views starting to change on that. I uh, was originally very well. Uh, there's no substitute for a really good data scientist with great domain knowledge to build your models. So you'll never automate that part of the journey. But I'm starting to come around to the point of view. Well, maybe that's actually a goal that we should shoot for. I'm. I'm not sure if the way. Um, some companies that are making these offerings at the moment are going about it the right way I think they're approaching it very much through the prism of well uh, really good data scientists are hard to find so let's cut them out of the the equation and just automatically generate models I don't know if that's the way to go maybe they will arrive at something valuable by virtue of going through that but I'm I look at the automation of data science more as okay well what tools can we develop that when we can you know standing on the shoulders of giants sort of thing if we can automate with confidence and with safety some parts of the process then as data scientists that should be actually be a really good thing for us because that frees us up to do the more creative side of data science as opposed to Sitting and re-running code for hours at a time and staring at the screen.
0: That's such a great, such a great insight that the the increase in computing power has has led to uh, people wanting to automate the data preparation side and automate data science um, completely and almost almost data scientists automate data scientists out. Yeah. out of the process. Instead of allow them allowing data scientists to be more creative with their with their data preparation. And and I've definitely heard that from, from a lot of vendors that they try to say, you know, look at this fancy new tool. It means that you won't need data scientists anymore. Uh, but in reality what what we need is is the the creativity around data preparation to to create uh, new features and to and to put into into features, as you said, what people are talking about, the domain expertise—that—that that is where the, the focus should be. Uh, sometimes, and you mentioned that having that domain expertise was very important for for the data scientist. Uh, why why do you say that is? And uh, I'll ask you that one first.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, well, it just comes back to the the three-legged model of what a good data scientist is they have the um, statistical backing they have the programming knowledge and they have the business knowledge or the domain knowledge as well i mean that really goes a long way you've got you've got to understand the business context or the application context if you're not in you know strictly business setting of the data you're working with it's like one of your previous interviewees really you know having a good appreciation of how the weather works and the science of weather leads to a greater understanding of what to do with weather data it's it's pretty self-evident i think um i think if i look at that three-legged model i think of what a lot of people are missing these days is the statistical knowledge part of things so you're finding a lot of people who can get a good head for the business that they're in or the domain that they're in and they may know how to throw some code together but You find that when they're building models, they're just optimising them by doing these brute force parameter sweeps or whatever you want to do and not really thinking about, okay, well, if I had to build this thing, if I had to build this algorithm by hand, what would I do? If I had to build, say, something relatively straightforward like a random forest algorithm by hand, would I know how to do that or am I literally just throwing data into it and modifying the number of of trees, etc.? Um, and the number of runs and just going with it. Um, I'm finding a lot of that and as a result, I mean, that has negative consequences down the line because as a result, if you don't know the, st- the statistical methods of the algorithms you're running, how do you have a hope of understanding mm-hmm. um, the measures of fit and the measures of accuracy and performance measures of models? So I'm finding that people are a little bit, not as deep on that aspect these days so it's to come back to your question it's not so much the domain knowledge that i get concerned about it's the mathematical and statistical backing that i'm starting to see a bit of a, a gap emerging in a lot of that not to put too fine a point on it but a lot of that comes down to the mythology of how much data scientists paid as well i mean if you know a bit of coding and know a bit of business all of a sudden you can become a data scientist and come from another domain I mean, I, I think specifically about programmers, right? And I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not um, being derogatory to programmers saying, well, don't you wish you were a data scientist? Um, I actually look at some of the programmers I know in my life and think they are far more skilled at what they do for a living than a lot of data scientists I know. Um, they're far more disciplined in terms of how they write code, manage code, release code, test code, all those sorts of things. So... If you want to call yourself a data scientist by doing a couple of Kaggle competitions or a couple of um, Coursera courses, I think you might want to have a really good think about what it is you're actually trying to achieve.
0: That is definitely people not for, not working enough on the background, especially in statistics and wanting to to get into data science, that definitely comes from the from the hype and the the demand for for data scientists. Do you think that there's a that there's an argument uh, in terms of the uh, the demand for data scientists and the, and the um, talent war, do you think that there's an argument there about making data scientists more productive rather than having more data scientists uh, in general?
1: I think that as companies become more data literate, they are expecting more of their analytical capability and their data science capability, if they have it, their data science capability. I think in general, I'm seeing people are becoming uh, your general business... Um, audience is becoming a lot more au fait and a lot more cognizant of what's possible with data. The downside of that is I think a lot of that's being fed to them by articles on LinkedIn about Watson and AI and what have you. So uh, sometimes the expectations can be a little bit out of whack, but I find that companies that have a really good head for data and know what they want to do with it, they are generally becoming more demanding and more concise in their expectations of what needs to be achieved. So what that does to data scientists is uh, I think uh, coming back to the patient's thing, I think data scientists need to realize that some of those requirements not be it might not be your really high level we want a machine learning model to do this there might be something as simple as we need a more intelligent form of insight or report. I think um, people get a little bit too precious about well that's beneath me I'm a data scientist when it's all adding value, right? Uh, so I think if you talk about the war for talent and all those sorts of things, I, I um, always think that you know, the, the turning point is around the corner. I mean, our, our mate Eugene Dubasarski and I have convinced each other at various times over the last 10 years that the data science hype cycle is about to blow and everyone's about to lose their jobs. Um, yes. We, we, haven't seen it, we haven't seen it yet. But I think a lot of companies are opening their eyes up to, okay, um, if we say we need a data capability, it may not just be, let's go out and hire some data scientists. They're starting to become a little bit more educated about, okay, well, what we're actually after is reporting analysts or we're after actually really good business performance analysts, those sorts of things. So... Maybe that means people are a little bit flexible in what they call themselves. I think maybe we need to more broadly label ourselves as analytics professionals, and I don't mind that term. Um I don't see it as a step backwards to call yourself an analytics professional. It just means that you're covering a lot of bases. A lot of bases indeed and and yes um, <laughs> I think um, I think
0: I've heard Eugene use the term the the data science winter. Uh, is is coming
1: <laughs> Eugene and I talk, talk a fair bit and I very much value Eugene as a mentor in this field as well and um he said a lot of things he's got a lot of really good sayings that I've repeated over the years one of one of the better ones is um we talk about the war for talent and companies doing really nuts and bolts things he he calls it the knife fight of um data science And I tend to agree with him, and that's kind of the end where I've always liked to play is more at the knife fight as opposed to, you know, the nuclear option of data science. It's about the nuts and bolts and getting there in there and competing with your competitor on the nuts and bolts. So, yeah, look, Eugene's great, and I value Eugene's um, guidance on a lot of things. Same, same here. And I did not want to ask you more. We all all need a Eugene Dubasask in our lives as data scientists. (laughs) That's so true. (laughs) That's great. And I I do want to ask you more more about the, the knife fight. you will kill me for saying that because he's busy enough as it is. <laughs> he is.
0: He is very he's so he's he's a good man. Um so I, I do want to ask you more about the, the knife fight um of, of data science. And um and essentially,
1: yeah, if you can tell us a little bit more um about it. Okay. So I'm probably bastardizing Eugene's um concept a little bit, but I see it very much as the, um, the what are you doing better than your competitor? And it doesn't need to be the full tilt thing that's going to blow everyone out of the water, it's just what's the edge that you've got through data science and machine learning on your competitor? And something he and I have talked about a few times and something I've, I've spoken to other people about is I, 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 I don't think we as a community spend enough time and pay enough attention to small and medium-sized businesses. Yes. Now, there's, there's, there's a reason for that. Um, a lot of it is around money and economics. Um, your average data scientist, if they're really good at what they do, can be a little expensive for that end of the market. Okay. Um, your consultancies up until relatively recently have focused on the big end of town. So small and medium-sized businesses haven't really felt a lot of the love from the benefits of analytics, data science, all that sort of thing, which if I... If I ignore the economic argument is actually a strange thing because I can imagine that some of the applications would be extremely interesting and some of the uplifts you could get would be extremely high by virtue of doing something better than your competitor as a small or medium-sized business um, using, you know, a better form of EDM targeting or better PPC or recommendation engine or, you know, those sorts of things. Um There could be major benefits, but again, it comes back to the cost. So when we talk about the knife fight, that's the sort of thing I'm talking about is using very specific applications of machine learning and data science to get an edge over your competitor in some very competitive markets.
0: I love that that area. Um, as well, and and definitely the, the using using data science in that in a very practical, very real way, and trying to get get I guess market benefits and market share and, and winning customers over by using analytics. That's um that's yeah. very very exciting.
1: Yeah,
0: really really good. So I wanted to um I guess change um change pace a little bit and ask you sure. about some of the I could I guess ask more about about. You, you maybe as a, as a personal, as a professional, and some some of your views. Um, and I wanted to to ask first about advice that you've received. Uh, what what uh, comes to mind as as some of the best advice that you've received that have has helped in your career?
1: I'm thinking back through many years of performance reviews and development discussions. <laughs> <laughs> and what could I have done better last year versus next year? What's my development plan? What have been some personal criticisms of my style? Like, there's a whole grab bag of things I could go through. Probably some good advice is about the um, the power of restraint and about working with the constraints that are put on you. Um, I uh, just to you know give you a, a completely left field example. Um, I do a lot of um, creative writing. I don't publish, but I, I like to do it myself just as a relaxation thing, etc. Wow. Um, And I like to read about other creatives and creative projects and I'm a a massive Star Wars fan and I have been my whole life and I've read a lot about how they made the original movies, etc. And one of the things that stood out about, I mean, I'm sure everyone's aware of George Lucas and he's the creator of Star Wars, etc. That his original vision for Star Wars and the script he wrote probably would have failed. Um, It was a big sprawling mess. But the studio he was working for at the time, which is 20th Century Fox, who contracted him to do the job, put some very heavy budgetary and creative restraints on him. And as a result, they did a lot of things like when they were putting together a lot of the, the models for the spaceships, et cetera, they were going and buying model kits from toy stores and then bashing them together and all those sorts of things. So I've always been a big fan coming back to the, the, the question of um, constraints not being something that holds you back constraints are something that can actually help you develop if you can solve problems within those constraints you can actually come up with something that's really powerful so whether it's budget or whether it's your mandate or whether it's the scope of the solution you're trying to do of the the advice I've all had many years ago and what I've tried to work with is that restraint is actually a really good thing and it comes back to the computing power thing I mean, uh, and again, statistics came about as a field because people were trying to make, get a lot of insight and information out of not a lot of data. There's a massive restraint right there. They didn't have the data available. And up until relatively recently, we haven't had our masses of data and uh, uh, machine data and IoT data and all those things available. So we've had to make do with what we've got. I think that's a very powerful thing for people to remember and something I've always lived by as not bashing my head against constraints, but by working with it within them to come up with something um, more challenging and more powerful and learning from that. The other thing that I was taught a long time ago is that when you're trying to develop an analytics capability and when you're trying to get something up and running, there's three types of people. There's the people who are not data driven and never will be, and they're honest about that. Um, There's the people who are genuinely data-driven in what they do, and they do use data to their advantage, and they can become your biggest fans and your biggest allies. But then there's the people who say they're data-driven, but in reality, they're actually not. And that can be seen as a very threatening thing to start with, but that's actually the audience that you want to work to. And... Talk about the knife fight of data science and the nuts and bolts, I, earlier on in my career when I was working with um, sales forces and, and, and field sales forces, sales reps who were going out in their cars talking to customers and developing opportunity profiles for them, getting out in the car and going on their sales runs with them or going to state sales meetings all those sorts of things very much helps to get those sorts of people over the line who say they're data driven, but in reality, they're not. If you can demonstrate the value to them in increments, all of a sudden, you've brought someone on the journey and you've got a massive supporter. So following that model and trying to get a hand very quickly and very intuitively on who fits into those buckets, I think can be a very powerful thing for how you manage um, not only your profile, but your impact in an organisation. That is excellent. Do you prioritise
0: working with with the, the people that say that they're data driven, but they're not? Uh, or who out who of the three do you prioritize?
1: The easy answer is you go after all of them. You find that the, the people who are not data driven and 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 are pretty honest about that are relatively dying breed these days anyway. But back then, when I first came up against that, you, you kind of do have to respect that mindset and work with it because mm-hmm. there is a lot to the power of gut feel and intuition. In fact, I've come full circle on that. I've gone through the stage of my career where there is nothing more important than the data and what the data says. But I've also come to realize um, in recent years that there, there's a lot of, there is a lot that rides on emotion and gut feel and snap decisions in business that really works as well. So you, you really do need to respect that view and incorporate it into what you do. Then, the, like I said, there's the people who believe in data and, and work with it. They seem to be self-guiding. Let's say an example where you're rolling out a new analytic tool. They tend to be the ones who are hungriest for self-training and will get there themselves. And they ask really intelligent questions about the data and, and challenge you about what you may be capable of delivering or not delivering and what you think the data means and, and offering insights to you that you might find useful. So I find that if you're then working and focusing on the people who say they're data-driven, but aren't quite there. It's not because they're just saying they want to appear data-driven. In a lot of cases, they do believe they are, but in practice, they're not. So it's about taking them on that journey in a respectful manner as well and not beating people over the heads with, you know, this is how you're going to do it this week. Taking people on the journey and being respectful about it and finding that one group feeds into another and migrating people from one group to another from the saying they're data-driven to the genuinely data-driven, it becomes a much more satisfying process and it feels like a really big win when you've got those people across the line. And it can't be just you. It can't be up to you as an individual to pull everyone kicking and screaming over that line. You have to build a community around you as well in terms of the team you build or the profile that you have in the organisation. You've really got to spend a lot of time on that and and it really comes down to that as well, time and energy. You really need to spend a lot of energy on the success of your initiatives. You can't just rely on them to be self-propelling. Like I said, Mm -hmm. me me getting in the car with sales reps, I spent a large part of the first two years in an organisation going to sales meetings and and getting to know the sales organisation and how it ticks and how I best serve them as my internal customer. And that took a lot of energy, not only in terms of energy away from you know, traveling, away from my family, all that sort of thing, but energy in terms of understanding, reading, researching, offering advice, all those sorts of things.
0: That's great, because besides being uh, an intellectually curious um, way to approach it, uh, it's also uh, and what I, what I like most about it. It's a very empathetic approach. It's a very human Uh, centred approach about uh, helping people in the organisation become better and taking them on that journey.
1: Uh, Don't get me wrong, I've made the mistake in, in previous years gone by of not having that empathetic approach and finding that, you know, some of the models I've deployed in the wild have had some very real impacts on people and how they go about their jobs and how they're incentivized. Um, I've made those mistakes as well. And thankfully, I've learned a lot from them. So I've been able to, like, as you say, take a more um, empathetic approach to not just you know, the, the the good parts of how things are implemented, but also looking out for the negatives and the people aspects of what you're trying to do because let's face it in a lot of organizations you come in with a machine learning approach uh, or a data science approach there will be a lot of people who think that you're actually automating their job and that's not really the case the case is you're trying to actually augment what they do for a living and add value to what they're doing for a living so you do have to be very careful about how you carry yourself in that regard
0: yes that is that is very very true and um, when you impart this to your teams and and get them to to think in this empathetic way and take an empathetic approach to their
1: work, um, how how do they react? How how do they take to it? Well, first of all, they see you as a human and not as you know uh, a data analyzing robot who's there to automate everything and replace everybody. I think um, you know, having just a very human approach with people and listening to people and asking them, you know, like I said before, very basic questions like what's the biggest business challenge you're facing at the moment or what are the top three challenges you're facing is a very good opener to taking people into your confidence so they tell you what their real issues are and what they really, really do need help with as opposed to what, what they're being told they need help with. Coming in and telling people what they need help with, it, it doesn't do it. Um, drawing that out of them, there's a way to do that. Like you said, it's a much more empathetic approach and, and, and that gets better results. It actually shows people that you care about what you're trying to offer up to them.
0: That's right. And and uh, people in your team, uh, have they been open to taking this, this approach to their work?
1: I've been very lucky in that most people I've worked with, Um, who have been in my team in um, current and previous organisations have kind of been like that anyway. I'm not a huge believer in the stereotype of an analyst or a data scientist as a very calculating, you know, um, fact-driven machine who doesn't let human emotion come into it. I mean, we're all humans, Mm -hmm. we all have emotions and all those sorts of things. Um, Either I've been very lucky in that I've worked with some great people who do take that um, collaborative, empathetic, problem-solving approach with their the internal customers, or, which is my suspicion, um, that that stereotype doesn't exist anyway. Yes, and I'm so glad that you said that. <laughs> uh, I completely agree. I think that the stereotype
0: doesn't doesn't exist, and that we are all all humans. That's excellent. When you take that approach, I guess that both that empathetic approach and delivering value in in organisations. Sometimes what happens is that that puts you in a situation when there's a lot more demand for your work than, yeah. than the supply uh, that, can be, that can be created, with, with a, especially with a growing team and, and in the early days uh, of a team. How, how do you balance the, the demand and supply as you're, as you're growing your teams?
1: Well that's actually a really good point that you raise because you find when you when you're building an analytic capability you find that you're selling it a lot and then all of a sudden once you build up a head of steam and get some results the the switch can flip very quickly to a problem of demand management that that switch I have found goes off really quickly and then you've got a different set of problems um being being able to operate in both modes is really key. It takes a slightly different skill set to empathetically and sensitively manage demand in the organisation while not pissing anyone off than it does going out there and selling the capability that you're trying to build. Um, I think being able to do both those things is key. Like I said, I've been very lucky in that um, the vast majority of people I've worked with have been able to come on that journey. I mean, a a lot of Uh, It depends on what what job you're hiring them for and what stage you're at anyway. I mean, there'll there'll be some people I've worked with who I've hired to come into my team during the capability building selling phase and then there's people who won't come on board until after we've hit that real crisis of demand management phase. So. you usually find that most people haven't experienced both when they're in that junior phase of their career, but hopefully there does come a phase where they do see both those contexts and are able to work in both environments, because they can be pretty different environments. But, I mean, it's a learning thing, um, and most people can learn to operate under both circumstances in their careers.
0: Yes, and and what would you say would be one um, one of the main differences in the, in the demand management uh, uh, phase of an organisation? That that maybe you didn't need uh, during the the selling of the analytics capability?
1: Well, it's pretty much that managing demand. It's being able to say to people, look, I'm sorry, I can't work on that right now. We've got something that's about to go out, but not discouraging them from working with you. So it's a very, it's a very, Sometimes it can be a very hard line to, to ride. And the easiest thing in the world is to put your hand up and go, I need more, more resources. But the issue then is then you've got to onboard them. They've got to get to know the business, et cetera. So it doesn't get you out of the, the short-term hole that you're in. So being able to say to people, look, is there an easier solution that you're able to do very quickly off the bat? Are we able to provide some sort of tool that's going to help you do it yourself? Or is it something that's a big-ticket item that's going to have to wait um, that, that is a bit of a, a bit of a soft skill that you need to um, to develop. Yes,
0: definitely. And and I really like that you said, uh, you know, letting people know that you can't work on it right now, but without discouraging them from working with you. that's, that's a really great approach. And and you mentioned before that that yourself and, and your team continually learning. So you you're always looking for uh, to to know what's happening and and essentially. Stay at the forefront.
1: How how do you do that? So a lot of um, a lot of my team um, go to specific conferences, and I'm happy to say I I, I and they have pretty high standards as to what they consider to be a conference that's worth going to. There's a lot of puffery around in terms of conferences you can attend. You can go to something every week, basically. We're we're very picky about the ones we attend and the ones we do attend tend to add massive value. And I'm always a big fan of people bringing the learnings back from those sorts of things and sharing them. You get the occasional person who's studying a degree part-time. There's a lot of online courses. I'm a huge fan of a lot of online courses, um, especially in the earlier stages, a lot of Coursera courses, those sorts of things. I keep up to date on algorithms, techniques, mainly through talking to the community um, and looking through other people's codes, code and uh, doing that sort of thing. I, I tend not to go to a lot of conferences myself. One, that's a timing thing. Two, that's a trouble thing. Um, three, um, it's about you know having a very filtered view of a conference that adds value. But I do tend to um, do the occasional online course just to keep things sharp. Um, I'm my core technical skill set is R and SQL Server. Um, mm-hmm. So I spend a lot more time in R these days. And a lot of lot of my development, although I'm not as hands-on these days, um, I tend to still like to remain hands-on because it kind of keeps that... Coding is a, is a style of thinking, and I like to keep that side of thinking as sharp as I can. So yes. I, I'm... I'm always a big fan of getting the latest and greatest packages and pulling them apart and seeing how they tick and what they're adding value to, all those sorts of things. Um, so I tend to be more of a hands-on learner as opposed to uh, sitting in an auditorium learner these days. Again, yes. that's a time issue. So it's a mix of all those sorts of things.
0: Do you think that staying hands-on in coding and, and do you think that that's important for for leaders and data science leaders?
1: Um, Definitely. Um, The biggest reason for that is because when you um, come into a technical team or you're building a technical team or running a technical team, a lot of people in that team will see their management still through a technical lens. So if you're able to demonstrate that you still have some technical capability, that's actually a pretty good shortcut to gaining some trust from your team that you've been there. They, They can see that you're you've still got your head in that area. So they go, yep, that person can code as well. Um, I know that they've got some technical skills, so they've kind of been where I am. So um, it gets you a little bit more um, trust from those people. Let's take that example to the absolute opposite. If you're running a technical team and you've got no coding experience and you've never coded, it's a little bit of a harder um, slog to gain the trust of that team. It can be done. I'm not Saying that it can't be done, but I'm finding that if you if you've still got your head in that space and can still think a little bit like a coder, then it's a little bit of a shortcut there. Um, I also find that from a creative problem solving point of view, it helps. I mean, a lot of a lot of yeah. coding is actually quite creative and uh, it's creative problem solving. So if you're still exercising those muscles, it has massive benefits to other areas as well. I've always seen the skill of coding to be more like writing a novel or something like that in terms of the, all the moving parts functions and all those sorts of things it's it's a little bit like putting together a piece of creative art so it, it has a lot of benefits to other areas of your life as well as just your day-to-day job um i actually love to do it as a as a recreational thing
0: that's fantastic and i completely agree i think it's so so important to so, so what, do you, what do you still do my background is is in r as well and and yeah in the in the last couple of years i started getting into into python and to Essentially, yep. learn a new programming language and and get yep. into some of the new packages uh, in Python, and then I, I started applying that in data science, and then and then recently I started I got a couple um a couple of Raspberry Pis, which are these. Oh, um,
1: I've, I've been interested in getting into that. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, it's doing? it's um it's really interesting. So at, at first I started just, you know, mucking around with them. So for example, earlier this year I got um I got married and for the for the wedding I was going to make a uh, a touchscreen, a Raspberry Pi powered touchscreen that they could take pictures of people, uh kind of like a photo booth and Oh yeah. So- yeah, so I put it together, built the whole thing, coded it up, and and made it so the pictures had a little ribbon at the bottom, so it said sort of the date and the <laughs> wedding, the event and everything, and then um, all in Raspberry Pi, all in Python, and it uploaded it to the cloud and shared it with, with the people that were invited, and then literally two or three days before the wedding, I showed my wife, and she goes, ah, oh, so why didn't you just use an iPad? Ah. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> And I was like, well, there's no that's so enjoyment. She's like, yeah, it's got the touch screen, <laughs> that's the front
1: that's camera. The us, us talking about <laughs> this, the simplest method works and the simplest model works, and then you get confronted with that, and you go, well, that's not the point. That's not what I was trying to do. <laughs> uh,
0: anyway, but yes, no, I do, I do um, love still getting getting in there. So I only have a, a couple of of other. Other questions uh, before before we wrap up, and they're more about about advice and 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 your thoughts in in helping other people. And I wanted to start by asking, uh, what would be a, a recommendation that you would give to to people just starting data science? On it, it can be either a recommendation on what they should do uh, or focus on, or maybe. What would be a bad recommendation that you've heard other people say or that you've heard in in the market?
1: Okay, so the easiest thing to talk about with the bad recommendations is to focus on tools. Um, Tools are very interchangeable in terms of either languages or some of your visual tools for data science and analytics and all those sorts of things. it's it, They really are interchangeable and I really don't worry about what vendors say in this regard. The algorithms, unless they're doing something really funky, the algorithms that are underlying these things are all the same. So the trick is to learn the algorithms first and don't, also don't go trying to crack a walnut with a sledgehammer in terms of well, I only know three or four techniques so those are the only three or four techniques i'm going to use um having said that i wouldn't go learning really really exotic stuff i'd have a grab bag of three or four different techniques for each type of application for classification for regression for for clustering what have you and really learn the maths and the statistics behind them that that would be my advice and also realize that it's this is a journey. It's not a sprint. There is a world of information and data out there and not to worry so much about knowing it all in the first couple of years of your career. Just knowing enough to get you started on solving good problems in the application area in which you're working is enough. Um, I'd also encourage people to think more about the creativity of problem solving. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly amazed at some of the startups that come about and problems that they're solving that I, I intrinsically knew were problems, but I had no idea that there were such elegant solutions to those problems. You know, things like micro microtransactions for, um, for reading online articles and, and online video and things like that. There's some fantastic things going on. But having said that, don't bust a gut trying to come up with the next greatest and latest thing. Take your time. I think not a lot of people are in a, really in a rush to get somewhere and I think a lot of people don't know actually where they're in a rush to get to early in their careers. Mm-hmm. I'd say t- take a very measured approach. Self-education is key. The further along I get, the the more I realise that your actual formal earlier education in terms of what degree you have is really they're really there to teach you more how to think than the the content themselves. I've seen people come at this space from radically different areas, like I've seen people with law degrees in data science and geologists and psychologists. and not, I mean, I, I came from a marketing background. So you can you can come at it from all different angles. You don't have to be on the right track from the very start of your career. I've seen some people enter this space quite late in their careers and have big impacts. There's there's no, one of the the beautiful things about what we do is that there is no set path. And anyone who tells you that there is a path that you absolutely need to follow, I'm I'm sorry, but they're flat out wrong about that. Um, There's many ways you, and, and you find that a lot of those people who've come from vastly different perspectives add massive value because they're thinking with paradigms that can be translated across to what we do that most other people haven't thought of. applications of geological science and physics and all those sorts of things that can be brought across, people are bringing across massive value with them and the rest are just learning tool sets. That's that's really all there is to it. Um, I would also um, say to people that it's not rocket science. A lot of these things are quite understandable in very practical terms. It's not all an academic exercise to try and understand the inner workings of algorithms a lot of them were developed to be very straightforward processes. It's just maybe the maths behind how they were formulated and validated was a lot more complicated uh, and it always helps to have an appreciation of that. But in practice, it's not rocket science. You can be solving some very meaty problems with some very simple uh, techniques. It's just how, how you go about putting that into production that counts. So I think the overarching part of all that is just try not to overcomplicate what you're doing. Try to take a very measured approach and the and the complexity comes from there. Absolutely.
0: Oh, so much sense. And, and you know, uh, through, throughout that I was thinking I, I wish I had that that advice when I was starting my career because I I made all those those mistakes and I was, you know, um young and impatient and, and
1: <laughs> not not thinking about the long term. Yeah, I mean you do have to make mistakes, right? Uh, I I I'm a big fan of And you do see it in this space. People, they've got a few years under their belt in their career. They might be in their early 30s or whatever, and then they make an absolute clangor of a mistake. It helps to have a bit of humility as well and realise that you are going to make mistakes from time to time, and there really is no such thing as the rock star data scientist. Um, Yes. Those who tell you there are, um, again, I'm afraid they're wrong about that. People make mistakes all the time. As long as you have more wins than failures, then you're getting somewhere in your career, and you shouldn't be worried so much about getting things right absolutely every time, because that's how people make really big mistakes.
0: Correct. Correct. <laughs> yes. Your answers through that discussion, I, I definitely notice a, a pattern that you have that around uh, testing and trying things and and improving them uh, on the way, and and essentially being obviously outcome focused and learning by by doing instead of you know waiting to to do something perfect uh, every time uh, which generally slows slows people down and slows them um, progress down that's that's excellent and i wanted to ask you since that was such uh, such great advice for people uh, starting in in their careers what mm-hmm. would you say to people that are starting to to lead and manage manage teams uh, or looking to start new teams in an organization uh, what would be i guess some some advice for them
1: so it's pretty straightforward Um, in my mind, um, A, find good people, hire good people who you can trust, that's three quarters of the battle. And over the last five or so years, after some kind of bitter experiences, I've learned that trust is key. Um, You need to be able to trust um, the people who are working with and for you, and they need to be able to trust you as well. You as a leader have got to earn trust in the organisation. And it's a very, it's a very simple equation Uh, in every interaction you have with someone who works for you or you work for or work with, you ask yourself, what am I doing with this person right now that's either going to build trust or destroy trust? Um, Because if they trust you as a person and trust the insights and results you can get them, then that goes a long way towards being considered a leader. And I'm a big fan of what's being fashionably called servant leadership um, Mm -hmm. at the moment in terms of... I don't don't see myself as being above my team, Um, I've got people in my team whose technical capability is far greater than mine and far greater than it ever was and I know some people can actually be threatened by that by having people work for them who are more capable than that but I've never had an issue with that because I just see it as um, managing a group of people with extremely good talents and fitting them in with each other so they can be more powerful as a group than they ever would have been as individuals. And what I mean by sort of servant leadership is you recognise that about your people. Um, you as a manager, um, and as you become more senior, your your role is to remove obstacles for those people and help them so they can actually focus on what they're doing. Um, in in recent years, some outstanding insight that um, I've gotten from a CEO I've worked with for the last few years is as you become more senior, you recognise that your job And part of what you get paid for is to take more of the pressure, but what your job as a manager is to do is filter that pressure and not transfer that pressure down to the people who are in your team. So a lot of your job is to deal with pressure of deadlines, expectations, et cetera, but translate that into positive action and positive outcomes, not just passing that pressure down to your own people. I think that actually counts for a lot. I mean, It's not about making people 100% comfortable and thinking that everything's hunky-dory and everything's cruisy, but there's a way to do that that doesn't, you know, really put the screws on them and just turns people off. It's about getting the best out of people as human beings and about enabling them, not so much directing them and managing them per se. And that's a journey I've been on in my management experience and and something that I've come to realise and value in the last um. Few years, and I, I actually think it's—I won't, I won't blow my own horn—say it's made me a better manager, but it's made me aware of my own um, abilities and limitations as a manager, so I can work to them in a more honest way, as opposed to thinking that I've just got all the answers. Well, that's really interesting because I do—I do think that
0: it makes people better managers uh, when when they're, you know, willing to hire people that are better than them, and they—they they want to serve their team and, and almost you know almost as a manager almost work for the team in the sense of removing roadblocks and enabling them to do uh, the best work that they can and make uh, a trusting happy productive team I think I think that that is it makes it makes people feel important feel valued and and encouraged to work hard for for the team and for the organization uh, so th- I, I I, I'd love that answer I'd love that
1: answer I'm coming to the realization that you can make yourself look good as much as you like and get your team to help you make uh, to help you look good but the lesson to learn is how you make your team look good and something that it takes some people a while to realize and and I've been on that journey myself is that if you can make your team look good, then by reflection, it'll come back on you. you you'll be seen as being capable of doing that. And I'm not, I'm not obviously not saying that I'm perfect at that. I, I do um, have my faults as a manager, et cetera, but I do approach it with the best intent to go, what can I do that's going to make these people um, look good to the organisation? I mean, it's all, it's all a journey. Um, I still have all of my faults and make mistakes all the time and, you know, you can accidentally break trust and you can do what you can to, to earn trust, but it's all a journey. And the idea is just to get on the journey and be patient with what you learn from the journey.
0: That's fantastic. That is that is outstanding. And that is a, a fantastic note to to end on as well. Oh, I love I love that answer. <laughs> and um, Tony, thank you. Well, I can't thank you enough. Actually, um, thank you so much for for doing the interview for for sharing all your insights and, and philosophies and approaches. They're extremely extremely valuable and and are uh, so so interesting. I know that. Eugene has, has te- been telling me for a long time that, that I should um I, sp- I speak with you and get get some time from you and obviously like Eugene's recommendations are always great but I can totally see why now this has been uh, super super interesting and and just great really really great so I can't thank you enough thank you so much for for taking the time uh, to do not the interview I really appreciate it not a problem that brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.